What's up, everybody? I'm Omar Serrato, experienced and practicing attorney and unofficial commentator on the most popular legal issues of the day. I'm the host of the Tilted Lawyer podcast, joined by Eliana Clone Rosa and the TLP crew, where we break down the human aspects of law that everybody wants to talk about. I've been a practicing attorney for many years, but nothing in this show is or should be taken as legal advice. We're not going to pull any punches. We might even get a little bit dirty, but we want you to join us anyway. Well, good evening, everybody, and a very pleasant hello to you, wherever you all may be. As a very famous man once said, rest in peace, Vin Scully. There's a lot to get to, and before we get started, I'm by myself today. Uh, there has been the commencement of the Alex Murdoch trial. I've heard it pronounced twice, uh, twice, two different ways, Murdoch and Murdoch. So I'm really not sure how to pronounce it, and I'm not sure that anybody's really settled on it, because I've heard... The attorneys on both sides pronounce it both ways. And so I'm just going to go with Murdoch uh, because it's the way that it's spelled. Uh, but things have gotten started. We are into the third day of trial. They selected juries on Monday, and it was a very quick process for them to select juries. I think they spent maybe a few hours doing voir dire. Uh, they had 600 prospective jurors um, in the jury pool. And the problem that they were having is that Mr. Murdoch is a very high-profile attorney there in South Carolina. South Carolina is a very small, tight-knit community, and everybody kind of knows everybody. So they're struggling to find, or they thought that they were going to struggle to find anyway, a jury uh, didn't have some kind of personal ties to this case, or know somebody, or know the investigator, uh, or was the cousin of the uh, whoever. And so, but they got him seated. And rather quickly, because I've seen voir dire take, a, you know, a few days um, in some of my cases. And, and the truth is that there's a there's a big field of study when it comes to the selection of jurors and uh, how to keep the jurors on that you want to keep on and how to uh, get rid of or pick and choose the people that, you know, are going to uh, convict your guy or acquit your guy, you know. Um, but the truth is, in my experience the jury is what you're going to get. I mean, you really can't control it. You're only limited to so many. You're, you're only allowed to dismiss so many people from the jury uh, before you just have to seat uh, the selected 12. And so, I mean, you could go up and down about the psychology, about whether or not you should have males or females on the jury, whether or not it should be a younger or an older jury pool, whether or not you want to have more liberal versus conservative. And honestly, it doesn't matter because you, you, you spend all this time trying to decipher uh, through a series of questions, the, the the court usually chooses ten boilerplate questions, and you know the jurors may have some limited opportunity to speak to the jurors. But the reality of it is, you get what you get. And voir dire is very much the process of I get to speak with you for thirty seconds, and in that thirty seconds, I have to make a determination about who you are, uh, what you're into, what your political leanings may be, and whether or not I think you're more apt to show my clients, if I'm defense, mercy, or if you're more inclined to wade through the bullshit and just say, well, there's the evidence right there and I don't need to see anything further. Guilty as charged. And so that's kind of the game that gets played. In this case, in the Murdoch trial, they, they really didn't spend a whole lot of time on it. Uh, they, they had a jury selected within a few hours, but I did have the opportunity to sit through the opening statements, I know I did say I wasn't going to do a full-on play-by-play, and I promise I'm not. 
Um, there's plenty of other folks that are doing that. And honestly, if you're going to, if you're looking for a play by play, I mean, you might as well just tune in. It's on, um, the law and crime network. Uh, there, there's a stream where you could just basically sit there and, and listen to a trial. Uh, I think the way that we're going to cover this is I'm simply just going to, uh, day by day. And, and, and I mean, we do our weekly podcast, but as more evidence comes out, blockbuster evidence and whatnot, and today was relatively quiet. They had opening statements yesterday, but as this evidence comes out, we will do um, short videos to touch on some of the highlights. Um, it's not going to be our normal hour, 15 minute podcast that we've been doing, you know, for since the summer. Um, but I think the proper way is just to go over the highlights. So everybody understands what's going on. And uh, proceed from there. So first impressions from the opening statements. I can tell you right now uh, that Creighton Waters, who was the lead prosecutor for the state of South Carolina, my impression of him is he's a seasoned attorney, but he's very, very much a prosecutor. And I feel like this in my career, this is what I've observed. Prosecutors tend to be less personable, a lot more matter of fact, um, a lot more fact, well, obviously fact-based, science-based, and, you know, they're, they're always the less charismatic of the two, usually, usually, and I think part of that has to be, is probably because they represent the state of California, they got to be more tight, uh, you know, tight-stitched, they can't just go off on the rails the way the defense attorneys can. And plus, they have a boss that is the government of the state that they're employed for. And so typically, the, 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 the state attorney, and in this case, Creighton Waters, they tend to be a little more conservative, buttoned up, as Mr. Waters displayed. However, in an emotional case like this, they have to show some kind of empathy towards the victims. And the way that that usually plays for a jury, at least for me, observing is sort of disingenuous, as in I'm trying to force that, oh, I'm so upset by this, and this is such a heinous crime, and um, the audacity of of it all, and, and the gore, and blah, 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 and it's just very forced and theatrical, and they're not very good actors because of the nature of who they are. Who are you? You are a prosecutor. You are the uh, renderer of judgment, the the administrator of justice. You are here to hold people to answer for crimes, and you are very much here to judge people as guilty. And so, you right off of the bat, I mean, you're not very, I mean, you have to play this role that you're empathetic towards the victim, sure, but um, by nature in the courtroom, you're not often staring at the victims. You're staring at the accused, and it's a very confrontational thing, and so they develop this very combative uh, disposition in the courtroom. And that's very much Creighton Waters. And so aside from his almost forced emotional displays, um, yeah, he's a good prosecutor. He's fine. He's fine. But he pales in comparison uh, to the defense team attorneys, uh, the lead attorney being Dick Hartputlian. Now, Dick Hartputlian is a character. And he's been around for a long time. I mean, he, I, I believe he's been practicing for over 30 years. He's actually a state senator in the South Carolina. He's dabbled in uh, politics up there, but he's very well known. Uh, but more importantly, he's one of the most seasoned uh, trial attorneys in the nation. And so 
seriously, uh, for, for that reason alone, I was very interested in how this case was going to be tried. And a lot of that, a lot of his polish, a lot of his theatrics, a lot of his charisma came out uh, during his opening statement. And I'll tell you what, uh, the prosecution has some real problems in this case. They have some serious issues. Um, number one, uh, there's going to be a charisma deficit. And all that means is um, if the defense plays their cards right in this case, and I'm not sure how good of a job of that they did today. Um, and I'll talk about that when we go over some of the evidence from day one of trial. Uh, they're more likable than the prosecutor. There's this charming element to uh, the defense team that the prosecution just doesn't have. They come off very polished. They come off, you know, with this very Southern charm and uh, they kind of lull you into a false sense of security, but also like it's, it's part of like the good old boys. Like they put their arm around you. It's all handshakes and, and, and you know, eye contact and um, in a very gentlemanly way. And the way that he starts off his opening statement as he has Mr. Myrtle uh, stand up and says, this is, it is an honor that I am representing Alex Murdaugh, loving father. And he goes on this, this tangent, right? And then compare that with uh, Creighton Waters, who began his uh, opening statement with the righteous indignation of the people. And uh, describing the timeline of events, he outlined the theory of his case, and he, he presents it. He was effective. Don't get me wrong. He was effective. The problem is that he's going, he's going against one of the best of the best. And charisma matters in a trial like this. Um, the characters are fascinating. Alex Murdoch, the more that I hear about him and the more that I learn about him, I mean, you look at him and he's just a guy. But in the state of South Carolina, in the small universe that he crafted for himself um, there uh, over the many years that he was a powerful attorney, despite the fact that he stole $8 million from his clients and he's been since disbarred. Um, his aura of power is palpable there in South Carolina. And his defense team exudes that. And as you see Mr. Murdoch sitting there in court, he sits with an air of a guy that has a lot of power. You know, he doesn't strike me as the kind of guy that's, you know, the wilted defendant, you know, they're, um, ashamed of whatever it is that he's been accused of, and he's there at the mercy of the people. And, and, and so I feel that in the first couple of days of trial, it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out going forward, but just initial observations. So let's get into the opening statement of Mr. Creighton Waters. So Creighton Waters began his uh, opening statement, <clears throat> just outlining his theory of the case. And, and just from some of my notes, um, on June 7th, 2021 on the evening. And he starts going through and he's, he's trying to tell the story about what happened. And he did in his, his prosecutor way, um, on the evening of June 7th, 2021 on defendant's property, Paul Murdoch standing in a small room with some kennels that they have on the property. And he kept on making reference to these kennels. And he goes on to point out that there's three main areas of the property. And if you see these overhead views of the Murdoch property, it is humongous, humongous. But he made some points that there's the main space where they live. And then there's the kennels where the, where the incident took place. And then there's another uh, family property that, that he referenced. But he's, he's painting the picture. And his timeline of events was as follows. At 8.50 p.m., Murdoch took a 12-gauge shotgun 
and he shot Paul, his son, in the chest and the shoulder. And we learned from the defense that, I mean, he, he shot him with 12-gauge buckshot, which is this, this, this encasing um, with pellets that explodes upon impact, and it just leaves a wide spray of um, shrapnel. So if he got shot in the chest, um, it also hit him in the, in, in, the, uh, in the shoulder. The defense was careful to point out because the prosecution, Mr. Waters made a big deal about the fact that there was no defensive injuries in this case, which is significant uh, because either they were defending themselves in the course of the murders or it just came out of nowhere as in they had no idea what was happening. And so it was done in secret. Uh, but at least for Paul, um, he was shot in the chest and the shell casing exited out of his shoulder as his hand was raised. If you believe what the defendant says, and we, we haven't seen any evidence of that yet on day one, but it's going to be a point of contention. So he shot with the shotgun. Um, in the chest and the shoulder, and then he's laying there on the ground. And a bullet, a second bullet from the 12-gauge, enters from under his head and explodes his skull. Paul collapsed outside the feed room, and the feed room is where the kennels were, where they housed um, various different animals. It was very much like a farm um, where they would have like a feeding area. Paul collapses outside of the feed room, and moments later, Myrtle picks up a 300 blackout AR-style style rifle, and there was multiple weapons, and he made very careful mention in his opening statement to, to explain that there were three different AR blackout rifles that was purchased by the Murdaws um, in the years prior. One of them had gone missing, and there, there was some discussion about that. But at any rate, he picks up this 300 AR-style black rifle after Paul was shot, and then he opens fire on his wife, Maggie, who was just feet away uh, near a couple of sheds next to the kennels. There was two shots, one in the abdomen and in the leg, um, and an additional two shots to the head, which killed her instantly. So she was executed. It was, she was laying on the floor on her stomach and uh, a, an effective shot to the back of the head turned the lights out on her in an instant. Um, and then they point out that Paul and Maggie, neither one of them had any defensive wounds, according to the prosecution. Uh, but they were both shot at extremely co close range. And uh, he goes on to say that the defendant, Mr. Murdoch, after the shootings were committed, would tell anybody that would listen that he was never anywhere near those kennels. But cell phone evidence is going to prove otherwise. So this is significant because this is their entire theory of the case. And the crucial part of evidence is going to be where he was located on a cell phone, um, where does he have, because if he's going around stating I was never anywhere near the kettles and we have the cell phone evidence pointing and putting him there at the scene at the time of the killings, uh, it's going to be problematic for the defense. So the problem with that is there are multiple explanations for his whereabouts that night that kind of coincide with the location of the cell phones. So expert testimony is going to be huge and uh, the cell phone testimony is going to be huge. And um, how it shakes out is anybody's guess. But the prosecution has one theory, 
and that, well, Murdoch was a liar. The defense has a theory that I don't care what the cell phone data says. It's incomplete. It's insufficient. And my guy was visiting his parents uh, while the murders were taking place. And he found them after the fact and blah, blah, blah. Right. These are the legal issues uh, from the people's perspective, as he told the jury. He, and this is significant because this is what the prosecution wants the jury uh, to focus on. He starts off by saying, you guys took an oath to judge the facts, not to rely on emotion, but to take the facts as they come Uh, and to be mindful of your oath, which tells me that he's got some facts in a very circumstantial case, because what I know, uh, based on what he said from his opening statement, is he doesn't have any direct evidence. There's no DNA evidence. It appears there's not going to be any forensic evidence that is going to be direct evidence that Murdoch was responsible for these murders. So he's going to build a circumstantial case and he's going to try to do it in such a way and instruct the jury that there's only one conclusion as to what happened. And it's not that, you know, there was some mystery shooter that got away um, and used two guns in the killings of uh, these two individuals. So this is going to be a circumstantial case for the defense or for the prosecution. Um, He goes on to talk about call a strike when you see it. So he's very much going to rely on, you know, call a spade a spade. Uh, The simplest explanation is best. Um, You see a dead body, it means that they're dead, you know, and you see a dead body and that was alive a couple of minutes ago and there's only one other person in the vicinity and they didn't die of natural causes, which very clearly these two individuals didn't, uh, then you got to connect the dots. And so he's trying to condition the jury uh, to start thinking that way. Um, He brings up the fact about reasonable doubt, um, and he states that his burden, and he used the words, uh, which is the cornerstone of our country, um, he placed an emphasis on reasonable doubt. The doubt that you have in this case, if any, must be reasonable. In other words, if, if, if the alternate theory of the case promoted to you after all of the evidence has been examined... If it's not reasonable to conclude that, then you have to find him guilty. And he's basically trying to say that I'm not putting on a perfect case. Uh, but if I tell you that, you know, if, if, if somebody walks into a house and when they walked into the house, everything was bone dry and the sun was shining and then you walk outside and then it's cloudy and muggy and everything is soaking wet, then circumstantially, although I don't have any direct evidence to prove it, uh, you can make the conclusion Uh, by connecting the dots that it rained in the time that you were in the property and by the time you exited. And he's just trying to remind the jury of that. He talked about the charges. Um, There were four indictments of Alec Murdoch. First indictment was of Murdoch uh, for murdering his wife. The second one accusing him of a first-degree murder of uh, his son, Paul. The third indictment accused him of possessing a firearm in the commission of a violent crime as to Maggie, and then the same thing in the fourth indictment as to Paul. Um, He goes on to explain malice of forethought. Now, malice of forethought is a term of art, almost, which is to say that prior to the commission of the murdering of these two individuals, uh, this man, Alex Murdoch, had evil in his heart. I believe he actually used that word, evil, in his heart. He planned and intended to kill and end the lives of his 52-year-old wife and of his son, Paul. And he did it in such a violent way. Um, This was not an accident. This wasn't, you know, the the gun accidentally went off. This was 
murder with malice aforethought. And that's literally what it means with evil intention, with evil intent. Um, he did talk about the nature of uh, circumstantial evidence and that, you know, the difference between circumstantial versus direct. And he gave his own little cute prosecutorial uh, example that they always give at the beginning of war deer and at the beginning of trials and usually in opening statements. Um, he was very keen on emphasizing credibility and the believability of witnesses. And the reason why he did that was because there's going to be a host of characters that testify in this trial that credibility is going to be an issue. There's going to be some people with some skeletons in their closet. There's going to be some people that might appear to have some mental illness. And I I reference Alex's best friend uh, that he hired to um, cooperate with him in a suicide scheme to defraud an insurance company uh, such that his son would inherit $10 million from the insurance payout. That didn't work. Didn't work out. I suspect that guy is going to testify at some point in this trial. Um, But I think what the prosecution is foreshadowing is the fact that there's going to be a lot of theories thrown out and that the defense's best strategy for this case, and really their only strategy in this case, is going to be to try to throw doubt into every single piece of evidence that is presented, which is, of course, is their job. But I think that they know and understand just based on the pretrial motions, there's already been pretrial motions as to blood spatter, as to cell phone evidence, as to photographic evidence. Everything is being um, challenged. And you'll see the defense attorney, uh, Harputlian, when he gives his opening statement as I go through it, um, what exactly they're trying to do, which is basically promote reasonable doubt at every turn, leave nothing um, uncovered. Um, oh, you found a you found a, a blue pen. Well, I have serious doubts that it's a blue pen. Was it really blue, or did somebody get a hold of it in the chain of evidence? And could we really rely on the fact that when that pen was manufactured, that it was actually blue? Because from what I've heard, it might be red. And you know what? What he said could have been complete bullshit. But it's just all he has to do is just do a little, just do just enough to make to raise doubt in the minds of the jury, and then he's doing his job. And so I think that this prosecutor is very aware of that and he's just he's trying to use uh, the terms uh, credibility the believability of witnesses I don't have to call a perfect case circumstantial evidence he's foreshadowing that uh, the defense is going to try to um, anything up their sleeve to try to discredit all of the believable and credible evidence that comes out in this case and then he outlined what that uh, evidence is going to be there's going to be video statements from Alex Murdoch body cam footage of the incident where the officers upon arriving there at the uh, facilities at, at his uh, estate were wearing body cam footage and were able to observe and record his reactions and his attitudes and the things that he was saying um, shortly after his uh, wife and his son were murdered, presumably by him. Uh, there are three recorded statements on video and the prosecution wanted us to watch his expression Uh, to listen to what he's saying and to listen to what he's not saying, which is to say that he's got a guilty conscience and uh, to listen to the clues in his body language and the things that you would think he would say, but he's not going to say that you're not going to hear him say back in Christmas of 2016. He goes on to say that Murdoch brought two, 300 blackout AR style rifles. And one of them, one of them of the two that he'd originally purchased and went missing from Paul's truck, his son in April of 2018. 
And so Alex replaced that rifle with another rifle that he purchased. Paul and his friend were using that replacement gun, the newer of the three, standing next to the gun room of the house, firing into a field, casings ejecting into flower beds, shooting that third replacement gun just weeks prior to the murder. And that's significant because the argument from the prosecution is that the shell casings found at the scene where the incident occurred, where the murders occurred, were the same shell casings that were found elsewhere on the property, leading to the circumstantial conclusion, because they never found a murder weapon in this case, um, that the guns came from a rifle that was owned and previously purchased by Alex Murdoch. That's how they're tying him to the weapon. Prosecution goes on to say that you're going to hear forensic evidence. Um, they're going to talk about the casings that were found in the flower bed and that the gun range that were ejected out of the same weapon that murdered uh, Maggie and Paul. Well, not actually not Paul. Paul was murdered with a shotgun. Maggie was executed with an AR 15 style rifle. Um, and again, the replacement gun that is suspected to have been used to murder um, Maggie was nowhere to be found. But what they're going to say is that they're the exact ammunition boxes and empty ammunition boxes is, that were used in the commission of the crime are found all over the property. So they're saying that not only was the gun used the same or one that he had owned, Alex, um, but the ammunition was the same. And so there's multiple variants of the same ammunition that could fire out of an AR-15 gun. So it's significant if they are saying that the exact same shell casings and ammunition that the Murdochs specifically used were using the commission of the crime. At the very least, you conclu conclude that the, the guns that were used in the killing came from the Murdoch estate and were used using the same ammo, ammunition, that was purchased prior that they had always used in those guns. Whether or not it places uh, Alex as the killer is another question, but at least we have that piece of the puzzle. The shotgun shells that killed Paul... Uh, the ammunition used in the murder was found all over the property. So they're talking about the AR shells and the shotgun shells. Uh, now, one week after the murders, um, Alex Murdoch's father dies. And he showed up in the early morning at his parents' home where his mother still lives, who has Alzheimer's. They're going to say that it was uncharacteristic for him to show up that early. He was carrying something in a blue tarp. Now, this blue tarp I have questions about because it's either a blue tarp or it's a raincoat of some sort. He took it upstairs. Law enforcement found out about it, and they found a wadded-up raincoat, and it was coated with gunshot residue on the inside. So now the, the, the raincoat is significant because the law enforcement, they testified today that when they got there, he was wearing a white T-shirt, and he was wearing shorts. Um, I think they said it was black shorts, a white T-shirt. There was no blood on him, and they didn't find any good gunpowder on him. Yet they find a wadded-up blue raincoat with gunpowder on it. I mean, they didn't find any blood on the raincoat, which is interesting. I don't know if they found any evidence that the raincoat had been washed, but they found gun residue on it. So it's going to be very interesting to see the nature of that gun residue, how much of it was found, if it was consistent with somebody holding an AR-15 and a, a, a shotgun rifle um, firing that gun. I don't know, but problematic for the defense. They're going to have to address it at some point. There was gunshot residue on the scene, on the seatbelt that Alex, um, the car he was driving. They found DNA. They found, a, which isn't really all that surprising because he lived there. It was his house. 
uh, he shared, he, he lived with his wife. And so they, I'm sure they found his DNA all over his wife and uh, his son, probably, um, as they were hanging out prior earlier that day, according to the defense. Um, firearms examiners uh, are going to testify about the gunshot residue. There's going to be lots of forensic evidence. Um, the cell phone evidence from the prosecution, this is what they're, this is, this is their theory. So Alex, Maggie, and Paul, they recovered their three cell phones. Alex and Paul, but also Maggie, were prolific cell phone users, his words, meaning they were always with their phones, the phones in their hands, in their pockets, they were always on their phones. And so it would have been, it would have been unusual for them to be separated from their phones for any significant portion of time which generally tracks with the way phones are used in 2023. I mean, this usually is on your person all of the time, moving along as you move along, um, including when you go to sleep. And most people sleep with their cell phones right next to them on the nightstand or in their beds, or they use it as an alarm clock. They go on to explain that there were three family properties, and they're explaining this to try to give you a layout of the land and where the cell phone evidence is going to put them on the estate. Uh, so, he talks about the Moselle property um, and the kennels and the shed. That's where Paul and Maggie were murdered. So there was the Moselle property, which is basically where they live. And then there's this huge field um, that separates the two. And across the way, some distance away, maybe a 45-second drive, according to the defense, um, or, a, I don't know, some, some kind of a walk, uh, a five-minute walk. It, it'd take you five minutes to get from the house to the kennels, but they're attached on the same property. Uh, there's the Edisto property at the beach, which is where Maggie preferred to stay in the summer months because she loved the beach. And then there's this house in Alameda, which is the parents' home, parents of Alex Murdoch. Maggie comes back to the Moselle property at around 8.15. And they're, they're, he's basing this as, of, off of what he says is going to be the cell phone evidence. So Maggie comes back to the house around 8.15 p.m. Paul was there. Alex was there. They ate dinner together. The autopsy showed that they all had similar stomach contents, suggesting that they had shared a meal together. At 8.30 p.m., Paul's phone starts moving towards the kennels. And I have to assume if they have his location data to that degree of accuracy. They have the GPS data on Mr. Murdoch. But at 8.30, Paul's phone starts moving towards the kennels. And again, they emphasize that Murdoch gave several statements and was telling every, anybody who would listen that he was never there. He was napping at the time. And it would, and they go on to, to point out that it would be unusual for him to be anywhere without a cell phone, which as an attorney is a, I don't know if he's an attorney back there or not, but you know, um, not even as an attorney, most people keep their phones with them. At 844, Paul, the son, records a video. He was down at the kennels and they thought that there was something wrong with the table down there. And Paul was recording a video uh, to show his friend that what was wrong with the table. At 8.46 p.m. on the video, Murdoch was at the murder scene with the two victims. Now, this is a significant deviation from the defense's story. The defense's story is Murdoch was never there. He was going to visit his parents, and when he came back, everybody was dead. But the prosecution is claiming that at 8.46 p.m., minutes prior to the murder, 
they have Paul and Alex on the uh, on video together. So when that comes out, I guess we'll see. But that's what they're claiming they have. And if that's the truth, then um, problematic for the defense. They have some big problems with that evidence. At 849, Paul's phone locks. He sends another text. He doesn't answer calls. And then Paul's phone goes silent forever, despite his friend messaging him, whom they were just communicating with, about a broken table. So after that rendition of the timeline, again, uh, the prosecution emphasizes credibility. So we're going to have some witnesses, I'd imagine, testify to that and. The prosecution wants us to pay attention to the credibility of the people speaking. So duly noted as to that. Um, now he goes on to talk about Alex's phone. Um, they Alex's phone did not have much activity until around 9.02. And, and prosecution's theory of the case is that uh, Maggie and Paul would have already been dead at that point. Um, at 9.04, he calls Maggie's phone. And then he calls his father, Randolph, who had not yet passed away. He passed away a week later. Um, He calls Maggie at around 9.06 p.m., a a couple minutes after the first phone call. Um, And then he sends her a text that he's going to check on his mom. He doesn't drive down to the kennels, even though it's a common place to be, uh, which you can see the kennels from the house. And, I, you know, it's debatable whether or not you can, but it's it's separated by relatively flat ground. It is a distance away. I'm not sure how much you can see, but there was some suggestion that the jury— might be taken to the house to see for themselves how visible it would have been. Um, and interestingly, the entrance of that property, I don't know if you drive by the kennels or not. Um, if he was going to leave to go visit his mom who lived close by, uh, I don't know if he would have driven in the direction of the kennels itself, or if he would have made a turn opposite. I guess that's going to come out in the evidence. Um, so at this point, 906, He turns on his car, texts Maggie that he's going to go check on his mom. Um, Again, he doesn't drive down to the kennels, even though it's, um, you know, seemingly on the way. He drives to his mom's house. The caretaker is there. He starts calling people. And the prosecutor makes the, the comment that it's going to be up to you to decide whether or not he's manufacturing an alibi. So very clearly they're pulling, they're, they're pulling the car that, yeah, he's, he's trying to cover his tracks here. So he goes on to say that Murdoch was only at his mom's house for about 20 minutes. At 9.44 p.m., he's on his way home. He's making phone calls. He gets back to the Moselle property at 10.01 and calls 911 at 10.06 p.m. And they wanted you to listen to the call and what he says and what explanations he offers. Um, They actually did listen to the 911 tape um, call this um, morning or this afternoon. I don't know if it's the morning or afternoon. But they did bring up that evidence. It's very difficult to hear. I'm not sure how much they're going to get from it. Um, I'm not even sure if they're done with uh, that piece of evidence yet. But, you know, he appears to be upset and he's talking in that kind of upset, high-pitched southern draw that he has. And um, the uh, 911 operators who fielded the call were there to testify uh, this evening. And there wasn't really anything significant that came out that was earth-shattering or groundbreaking in this case. Um, He says that you're going to see crime scene photographs, and yeah, you will, Um, the 911 call. And that was it. That was his opening statement. So his entire theory of the case is basically that Murdoch was there. He had planned this for whatever reason. Um, He executed Son first and then Maggie. 
Um, Maggie was executed with a bullet to the back of her head. Um, neither party had defensive wounds. After he committed the murders, the theory is that he tried to manufacture an alibi by uh, placing phone calls on a cell phone and um, going to his mom's house. And then, you know, the rest is history. That's pretty much his theory. Uh, and now the defense gets to... Uh, to um, and, and then uh, Mr. Dick Hartpoolian gets up to uh, issue his opening statement. All right, so Dick Hartpoolian gets up there and uh, he starts out his presentation. It is our honor to represent Alex Murdaugh. And, uh, you know, he goes on with that. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't know when attorneys do that kind of stuff. I mean, I've, I've done that before, you know, because I've seen other people do it when I was a younger attorney. I, I did that kind of stuff. Um, I just think it's just... I don't know. Maybe you could let me let me know what you feel in the in, in 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 the comments. When you see an attorney do something like that, you know, like for example, the righteous indignation of the prosecutor, this feigned um, indignance with uh, with the audacity of the crimes, and you hear the defense attorney get up there and say, "It is our honor to represent Alex Murdoch, loving father." How does that strike you as a potential juror or a prospective juror or just somebody listening to the case? Because it kind of rubs me the wrong way. It's like, all right, Dick, with this one. Um, but, you know, it has, it certainly has its place. And after all, we, this is the theater of trials. So, I mean, people have been doing it for hundreds of years and they'll be doing it long after I've stopped practicing. And so, but Mr. Harpoolian is, is clearly a, a student of um, 50s and 60s, 70s, 80s uh, trial and the presentation of an opening statement. He goes on to talk about that the prosecution's entire case is going to be based on theories and not facts, which is significant because they have no idea what happened. What they presented in their opening statement was a theory. It wasn't facts. It wasn't facts. They don't have a motive. They're going to make one up. They're going to make one up. And you know what? Um, I, will, I will go so far as to say that uh, I, I will not be contradicting myself when to, to say that you're not going to hear any evidence of any kind of motive in this case. He said this in so many words. Obviously, I'm doing a poor rendition of it. Um, he has Alex stand up and he says, this is Alex Murdoch. I hated this part of his opening statement, but I don't know. Maybe it's effective for some jurors. As a trial attorney myself, I didn't like it, but I know why he didn't. And you know what? I've also done it myself. I don't think I've ever had my clients stand up like that, but it's, it's something that I would have done in the past. I'm not sure if I would do it today. But he has him stand up and um, Alex Murdoch with his uh, red flaming hair and his, his uh, entitled face that he has, you know, gets up and this is the loving father of Paul and loving husband of Maggie. And I don't know if you are a juror who is already predisposed with the idea that this guy committed a murder. Um, I'm not sure how you're going to feel about that. And obviously you're not supposed to do that. And Hartpoolian is going to uh, go a long way into making sure that you try to get rid of that idea and, you know, guilty, not guilty until proven or innocent until innocent until proven, not guilty. That whole portion of it. Um, I just, I, I don't like that theater. Uh, maybe some people do. Uh, he goes on to say that you're not going to hear a single witness say that his relationship with both his son and his wife were anything but loving. And then he goes on to paint this rosy picture about um, 
a video that's in existence that's going to come out in trial, presumably as part of the, the, the defense's case, with Paul and Alex riding around looking at some trees that they had planted because they weren't planted very well and they were laughing and they were having a good time. And uh, that would have been an hour uh, before Paul was murdered. And obviously the indication being, you know, what loving father that just had this, this uh, emotional bonding, uh, happy moment with his son would then all of a sudden commit the following acts. And he did something that I thought, now this part of it I, I did like in terms, of, in terms of its effectiveness. So he paints the picture of this loving father, loving husband, family man, right? Alex Murdoch. And none of the financial evidence is coming into this case. They're not going to hear any evidence about, I don't think that they're going to bring in evidence of the uh, fraud scheme of the insurance company or the $8 million that he stole from his clients. I think it'd be, well, I, I don't know if there's been motions to that, but I'd imagine when somebody tries to bring it up, they're going to talk about it. So they're, they're trying to paint this picture. And then he goes on to say, to describe the murder of Paul. And his description of the murder of Paul was so much more graphic than the state's presentation of the same facts. So keep in mind, Alex Murdoch, loving father, and this is what you're supposed to believe that he did to his son. Paul Murdoch was shot twice with buckshot from a shotgun, once in the chest on a bullet that came out from under his arm. And then he makes a point to say that this, the state goes on to say there's no defensive wounds, but I don't know, you tell me. It looks like for the bullet to come out his shoulder the way that it did, that somebody had been holding up their hands as if they were in peril. So defensive wounds are going to be an issue in this case. They're going to be certainly argued by the defense. The second shot ended up entering his skull cavity and the gases from that shot exploded his head like a watermelon hit with a sledgehammer. And all that was left was the front of his face. Everything else was gone. Brain hit the ceiling of his shed and landed at his feet. And to find Alex Murdoch guilty of murdering his son, you must accept that within an hour of having an extraordinarily bonding moment with his son, he then execute him, executes him in this brutal fashion. Brilliant play, brilliant use of imagery in that case because every parent is going to be able to attest to, uh, number one, the brutal nature and, you know, doing that to your own child. And... It doesn't, it doesn't, it's certainly a question as to motive. What was the point of all of that? And I'd imagine that the defense is going to probably, if I was the defense attorney, I would make a big deal about just months prior to that, not even, not even a year ago, uh, Murdoch was trying to come up with some kind of a scheme to get his son, Paul, $10 million. He loved his son so much. And yet, you are expected to believe that he would murder his son in such a brutal fashion as that. Very effective. What does it practically mean in terms of evidence? It doesn't mean jack shit. Other than to redirect you, pull on your heartstrings, and get you to come to the conclusion that there is, why would anybody do such a thing? And what's that, 
what is the only purpose of that? To raise reasonable doubt wherever it can be, wherever it could be found. And that's, that's a big one. Motive. Motive. Where is it? For what purpose? He goes on, I mean, just the descriptive nature of those terms. The gases from the shotgun round exploded his head. All that was left was the front of his face. Everything else was gone. Brain hit the ceiling of his shed and landed at his feet. That is extraordinary use of descriptive language in an opening statement. Um, Yeah, great job. Great job on that one. (coughs) He goes on to talk about Maggie. He goes on to talk about Maddie. He goes on to talk about Maggie and describes her as um, she was shot as she was running. And after she was shot, she fell to the ground. After a bullet travels up and hit her in the brain. And then someone puts a bullet in the back of her head. She was executed. Interesting strategy. It just... Usually, it's the prosecution that you hear gives such a descriptive uh, accounting of what happens to the victims. But here, the defense is, is juxtaposing the brutality of this crime uh, with the image that they want you to believe that Alex Murdoch was a loving father and a loving husband, and he would never do such a thing. And then, after he describes the murder of Maggie, he goes on to say, Why? Why? We don't have a motive. What was it in that hour between the time he was having a good time with Paul uh, to the time that Paul was murdered would have prompted him to do such a thing? He talks about uh, Maggie's phone being thrown out on the road about a quarter of a mile from the incident. Uh, They found it by using um, Find My iPhone, which is an app to find your iPhone, I guess. Um, I'm not an iPhone user. I'm an Android guy. Always have been. My daughter is. So, but I'm, I'm familiar with that app. He came home, according to, we're still in the opening statement. He came home, he finds the victims. If he leaves at 9.06 from the house, and he's back at 10.01, and that coincides with the prosecution's timeline as presented in their opening statement. And opening statements are not evidence. It's just, it's their preview of what the evidence is going to show. So important because if you promise the jury that they're going to see something and then you don't deliver, uh, you're not doing very well, credibility-wise, and you're, you're not, you're not doing well in your case. And so uh, at least uh, the opening statement is reliable in that you could expect to find this cut, the, the evidence that they're suggesting you're going to find. And if we deviate, it's because something happened um, at trial to make it, de- to cause it to deviate, or maybe they just didn't have it. And, but, you know, uh, we'll, I guess we'll see. Um, he goes on to state that the cell phone records are incomplete, which is to suggest they're going to attack the prosecution's theory on the cell phone evidence, which is to suggest that there's going to be a battle of experts to testify about the veracity or the believability or the reliability of the evidence presented uh, with regards to the cell phone, which is going to make this a really long, drawn-out trial. I've predicted six weeks, uh, but we'll see. Murdoch was calling the phone at 9.06. He texted her. Again, that corroborates what the prosecution is also. So they're uh, saying, so they're in agreement on that. At 9.06, the phone is being thrown on the side of the phone almost a half mile away, which is uh, inexplicable, he says. Actually, it's not inexplicable because it's, 
it's, it's not that far of a stretch to suggest that Murdoch might have just pulled the phone off of Maggie and thrown it on the road himself to make it look like, uh, oh, the killer found the phone and just threw it out the window, which is unlikely uh, because if somebody had planned to execute, I mean, just throwing theories out there. But if the guy, let's just say he hired somebody to commit the murders, or let's just say that this is some random person uh, that decided to show up and murder a couple of people. Chances are, chances are that most people are not throwing evidence outside of the car, or at least they're going to get much farther away. Uh, they're not going to leave it at the scene of uh, the incident. Um, I don't know. It just, it, it, it strikes me more as evidence that it, whoever committed the crime, and I believe it was Murdoch, tried to manufacture a scene for the, for the police. So this is his theory of the case. He says the night he comes home, he finds his family butchered. He walks, he walks over and checks to see if there was any life there. He goes over and tries to get a pulse out of Maggie, and then he calls 911. So that's problematic. That's problematic because they didn't find any blood on Alex. Not on his hands, not on his clothes. When law enforcement got there, he was wearing a white shirt. And with the brutality of the scene that he had just described, whereby the gases from a shotgun shell exploded the head of his son, leaving brain matter on the ceiling, if he really went to check on and he admitted in the 911 call that he had touched the bodies, um, there is no scenario there where I could see that he wouldn't have some blood on his person. None. Yet they found none. It doesn't pass the smell test for me. It, it just is a little too fishy. It's too suspicious. I don't, I think that's a problematic aspect of the case, but how do you prove it is the point? You know, I mean, reasonable doubt being the standard, they're going to skirt around that issue. And matter of fact, there was a, during the questioning today of one of the, one of law enforcement, uh, one of the questions was, did you know that he had blood on his shorts? And he could ask that question without it being true, you know, because he has a theory. Um, and it's a yes or no question. And then the officer responds with, uh, no, I wasn't aware that there was, I didn't, I didn't know that to be true, that there was blood on his shorts. So on redirect, they're going to have to explain that. So, but yeah, it's, it's problematic. And the defense knows that it's problematic, but it's interesting because on, on questioning with one of the officers, he asked him um, if he knew there, do you, did you know that there was blood found on the shorts? Um, which isn't even a true statement, but the jury might take it as such. The jury is now, I'm assuming, expecting or has been cra um, crafted in their mind the potential seeds that there was blood on the shorts, which would explain, oh, well, he just probably wiped his hands on his shorts or something. I don't know. Um, and I don't know where they were going with that, but that was the question. And again, his only job is to create doubt. <clears throat> he goes on to talk about, you can't see the shed between the Moselle house and the shed. Um, which I don't know why that's significant, but he was careful to emphasize that point. He goes on to say that the attorney general has given you his view. Um, and then he makes the point. So I, I don't know where they're going with this blood evidence. It's going to have to be dissected. But he makes the point that um, if you committed these murders, you would be covered in blood from head to toe. His clothes were seized. No human blood detected. White t-shirt, no blood on it. 
But yeah, that begs the question is uh, even if you didn't commit the murders and you touched the victims, like you said that he did, wouldn't there find some, wouldn't, wouldn't there be some blood found on something? The fact that there was no blood found on him is just weird and leads me to believe that he probably hid the clothes that it was maybe on that. Maybe it was on a, a, a blue tarp. Maybe it was on a, um, the uh, raincoat that it says that they found on the, uh, in his parents' house. I don't know. I don't know, but it's, it's more, it's, it's stranger to me that there wouldn't be any blood, you know, I, I, cause they, I think that everybody could believe that if he found the victims in the state that they described, it would be okay if he had a little bit of blood on him and a shirt on his uh, whatever. I don't know. But he emphasized that. They go on to talk about his mannerisms, Murdoch's ale- uh, mannerisms during questioning by law enforcement. And he says that, um, Hartputlian says that his client was questioned aggressively, that he was traumatized from what he had just saw, that they had suspected him of murder. Uh, you know, uh, police announced uh, the next morning that they had found two people butchered. And then the police said not to worry that there wasn't a danger to anybody because they decided that night that they had spoken to him, that he was the one that had did it without any evidence, which is, you know, probably not true. They probably had a lot of evidence, um, as the prosecution had stated, uh, that they, he just points out the fact that they've been fixated on him only since June of 2021 and they didn't even bring charges until September of 2022, which is really not all that uncommon. Um, and this is just, it's a thing that defense attorneys do that, oh, it wasn't my guy, but they, there was this rush to judgment where they wanted to only focus in on him and they lost the opportunity to find the actual guy that did this. They did the same thing with the OJ trial. And, you know, there, there's nothing to see here. I mean, it's just common defense attorney stuff. And he talks about the cell phone activity. Um, on Paul's phone at 850. Um, Maggie's phone at 854 was still being used. And then at 906, he's getting into the car to drive to see his mom. He references that, but that, again, that just kind of supports what the prosecution said about the timeline. Um, And then he points out that he would have had to have executed both of them and got back into the house, got the bloody clothes off. Uh, They never searched his house for any other clothes. He gave permission for them to search for bloody clothes. There was no eyewitness no or fingerprints, blood tying him to the murder, and the cell phone indicates that he would have had less than 10 minutes to kill them, get to the house, leave, um, cover up the evidence, um, including the blood evidence, and be done with it, which is, to be honest with you, I mean, if he shot him that way, it, the, the shootings didn't take that long. If, uh, if they shot them, that would have been done probably with, within 30 seconds. And this was a man that had been hunting for the majority of his life that was very familiar with firearms uh, that could have, you know, put a couple of rounds into his son and four rounds into his wife in short order, probably less than a minute. Him being familiar with the property, I think if he already had a plan, because if there was no defensive wounds, it sounds like he was executing a plan. Um, If he had a plan that he was executing and he knows that he was creating an alibi, uh, 10 minutes sounds like more than enough time if you have it planned out, which is what the prosecution is going to argue. So I don't like that theory of the defense, um, but he has to say something, right? So uh, no evidence of an alibi, which is true. I don't know what the alibi is. I don't know what the prosecution is going to suggest. For me, the biggest question was why would he try to 
hatched this scheme to get his son $10 million only to murder him in cold blood a, a year later. It doesn't make sense, but I guess you, you can't lose sight of the fact that you don't need an alibi to prove a crime. There doesn't have to be a reason. I don't have to prove the reason why. If I'm the DA, I have, I have no, there's no requirement for me to prove what was in his head and why he decided to murder. All I have to prove is that he's the guy that did it. The reasons why could be examined while he's sitting in a jail cell for the rest of his life, presumably on death row. So, but the alibi, obviously the absence thereof, the defense is going to play that, that, that up as much as they can because he's trying to put it in the, in the jury's head. No alibi, then you got to quit my guy because otherwise you just have a senseless killing and that's all there is. And in the meantime, the prosecution is saying, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a senseless killing and why did it did it? I don't know. Not for me to decide. You all could write books about it. The FBI, I'm sure, is going to do a personality profile on this guy after the fact to learn more about people that would do such a thing. But this fucking guy did it. That's the game that we're playing right now. He brings up the question about whether or not there was one shooter or two. There was a shotgun and an AR. Um, and I think if it was a shotgun, the way that I'm thinking of the shotgun, um, which would be a dual-barreled round, there was two shots fired out of a shotgun, um, it seems like he ran out of ammunition on the one gun and then switched to the AR-15. I don't know, but he had him in close proximity. It stands to reason that one of the weapons was, uh, I don't know, out of ammunition. Um, it's not such a... I understand why he's asking that question because I asked it myself when I started learning about this case. But if he murdered his son with a shotgun, um, either the gun jammed but there was an AR-15 nearby. I don't know. Uh, that's, that's to me is not a, uh, it's not as big of a point as the defense is trying to make it. Um, but we'll see. He raised the issue. Um, he goes on a, again, point away that Maggie was running away as she was shot, where she was running from. Uh, could you shoot? I, I don't know. He, he was going on. He, he was kind of repeating himself at this point. Um, he mentioned at this point, he's kind of done with his theory of the case. And so it was very clear to me, the, the prosecution had a pristine timeline that they were going minute by minute down to the second about what happened and when it happened. Um, and all the defense, his opening statement um, really did was attack the timeline in that these are theories about what happened, but then it would go on to corroborate essentially most of what the prosecution said in terms of timeline. And he's just trying to put plant doubt in the minds of the jury in terms of their theory of the case. And he, he, he quoted Oliver Wendell Holmes, who once said about jury duty that it's uh, really, really important. Um, he goes on to talk about reasonable doubt, and he defines it for the jury as follows. That reasonable doubt is the kind of doubt that would cause a person to hesitate to act in the more important decisions in their life. So in other words, if you're ready to vote guilty on this guy, but you hesitate for a split second, that's reasonable. You have reasonable doubt. Reasonable doubt. Don't check that box. It's okay. Not guilty. You don't need to live with that kind of... You don't need... What he's really trying to say is you don't need to live with the consciousness of putting away an innocent man. If you have a doubt, if you are hesitating even one iota 
from checking the guilty box on your jury form, then don't do it. Save yourself the lifetime of regret. And listen to your soul. Find my client not guilty. That's what reasonable doubt is. Whether or not you believe that or not is up to you, but it's a brilliant maneuver because surely there are going to be some jurors in there that are going to have a lot of questions and doubt whether or not guilt is a thing or not. And um, in that moment of hesitation, I wonder if they're not going to remember him saying that very specific sentence. Reasonable doubt is the kind of doubt that would cause a person to hesitate to act in the more important decisions of life. Beautifully done by Mr. Hartputlian. He goes on to emphasize there's no uh, direct evidence. And he says, I say that with no fear of contradiction, which is to say you're not going to find any direct evidence. Completely circumstantial case. And then he says, if the state is to rely on circumstantial evidence, the circumstances must be consistent with each other. And when taken together, show conclusively beyond a reasonable doubt. If they merely portray defendant's behavior as suspicious, then the proof has failed, which is true. And which is to say that he's really said a whole lot of nothing. It's just, it's honestly borderline a a juror instruction that he's repeating that they're going to hear over and over again from the judge himself. And so that was his uh, opening statement. Uh, Today, during uh, day one of evidence, uh, there was first responder witnesses that testified. uh, They viewed the body cam, the body-worn footage. The public didn't get to see that footage, but it was shown to the jurors. I'm not sure if it was shown to anybody that was there in the courtroom, but the jury jury certainly got an opportunity to view it. Uh, The defense was trying to point out on uh, cross-examination of some of the officers that got up to testify that the crime scene wasn't well preserved, um, that they were making a really big deal about tire tracks, that nobody preserved the tire tracks. And uh, what if the murderer got away and we don't have the tire tracks? And, you know, for whatever reason, they were keying on that. Whether or not they scored any points with that, I don't know. But for whatever reason, today's discussion was about tire tracks. Tomorrow, I'm sure it's going to be about something else. If you have Murdoch trying to stage a scene, wouldn't it also be possible for him to try to cover up the tire tracks himself? I don't know. There's not a whole lot of points scored with that, you know, focus on the tire tracks. But today that was most of uh, what they talked about. Um, and again, the jury saw the body cam video. They um, viewed some drone footage. I'd imagine that was just to uh, get a layout of the land. Um, they got to see the change of demeanor uh, when Alex Murdoch, uh, when the police were looking at the tire impressions. So in the body cam footage, it was suggested in the questions and the testimony that there was a substantial change in Alex's demeanor when they started keying in on the tire tracks. What that means, I don't know. Um, but we're, we're talking about evidence that was examined, you know, a year and a half ago. So I'm not sure what is going to come out uh, from that. I don't know where the defense is going there, but Interesting to point out that Alex Murdaugh, according to the testimony, um, his demeanor significantly changed into something else. He he got nervous. He got fidgety. You know, um, I don't know. Something made him nervous. Uh, The 911 calls, uh, again, they were very difficult to hear. Uh, They did ask him about whether or not these could have been self-harm injuries. And then he's very quick to answer. Hell no. Um. I guess, to suggest that he knew that they weren't self-inflicted injuries. Um, 
Yeah, uh, they're, they're, they're really, to my ear, there wasn't a whole lot there to derive from the 911 calls other than he sounded like a guy that was either trying to act as if you were to have found two dead bodies just unexpectedly um, and try to, I guess, behave how one would expect somebody to act in that scenario, or maybe he was genuinely, I don't know, but there was, there wasn't, there wasn't really a whole lot to glean from the 911 calls. He did mention to the other, there wasn't a whole lot to glean from the 911 calls other than he told the 911 operator uh, that he tried to check for the pulse for a pulse of the victims who were bloodied from having just been murdered. So, he says on the call that he touched the bodies shortly after the murders, trying to check for a pulse, and yet there's no blood. There's, there's no blood. Uh, multiple officers got up, got up there to testify that, yeah, he had a white shirt and shorts, and there was no blood on any of them. Um, and then he was asked by uh, Mr. Hartpoolian uh, if, he, if he knew that he had blood on his shorts, and then the officer says, I didn't know or I hadn't heard anything like that. And that was to wrap up uh, day one of trial. So, um not a whole lot of fireworks evidentiary wise other than to set up. I mean, this week so far, we've had the opening statements. We have day one of testimony. They're starting with the body cam footage. They're trying to put you at the scene. Um, I don't know where they're going to go with it uh, from there, but significant questions as to why would there not be blood on an individual that checked a pulse of a murdered victim uh, who was shot in the head where blood was all over the place, where there was brain matter on a ceiling and a brain uh, at the feet of one of the victims. The defense is going to have to deal with that somehow. So that is the Alex Murdoch trial updates as of today, January 26, 2023. Tomorrow is day four of trial, and uh, we'll see where we go with that. I don't know. My opinions, my perceptions. I think that the defense... Here's what I think. I think that the prosecution has their hands full with this case. This is the kind of case that a defense attorney, a skilled defense attorney can win. And they don't get very much more skilled than Dick Harputlian. He's very, very well crafted. He's very well suited for this trial. He has this very charming um, approach with the jury. He did come off uh, a little harsh with law enforcement, but that's to be expected on cross-exam. I'm I'd read that there had been some indication that it kind of rubbed people the wrong way, but whatever to that, it's cross-exam. What are you going to do? He's going to call his own witnesses and he's going to rectify that. He did kind of point out to the jury, however, that, look, if you are offended by anything that the defense says, please blame it on me. Don't blame it on my client, which is to suggest that he's going to ask some very hard questions of the, the people's witnesses in this case, as he tried to do today, and he's going to continue to do um, as this uh, trial progresses. But yeah, the prosecution has some very difficult questions to answer. It is a circumstantial case, uh, but they do have t- two dead bodies. They don't have a murder weapon, as, as far as I know. They don't have an alibi. It is nonsensical, but I think where they have to focus, they can't get so wrapped up in trying to create a, an alibi. I think they just got to keep this really, really simple as much as they can because the defense is trying to open up everything, every little 
piece of evidence that comes out, it's like, well, let's let's take a look at the cell phone data. I don't know if the if the wind was matching with the solar polarity of the sun and there was a sunburst that might have uh, generated some extra pixels in the photographs. They're going to try to pull out all the stops, right? They're going to their job is to create doubt. And I promise you that right now that jury has a lot of doubt just based on what was said. I think the biggest problem that the defense has is obviously the blood evidence. What do you do when the, your client who allegedly found the bloodied victims has no blood on him whatsoever? Where did it go? He said he checked the body. He said, he said that he checked for a pulse and didn't find one. What do you do with that information? If I'm a juror, it's, well, because he probably hid some evidence and nobody found it. And um, is that possible? Yeah, the guy's been an attorney for a really long time. He's not a stupid guy. Um, did he try to manufacture an alibi? Yeah, probably. If I'm the juror, if I'm on the jury, that's the way that I'm thinking. I got to imagine there's other juries, jurors thinking that way. But at the same time, I know for a fact that right now there are jurors sitting right there that are uh, charmed by Mr. by Mr. Hartputlian and troubled by the fact that there's no earthly reason uh, why a man such as Alex Murdoch would murder his wife and son in the manner that was proven um, in the evidence, well, that's been suggested by the prosecution so far. So that's what I think. And um, I don't know, very interesting to see where we go from here. If you've made it this far in the video, uh, I, I tr really and truly thank you. And uh, listen, there's been a lot of things going on with YouTube that I've heard about, and I'm kind of, I'm new as a, as a, as a content creator. I've only been doing this pretty much since last summer. Um, some of our videos have been picked up by the algorithm and, you know, we have tens of thousands of views on those videos and there's been others that we put out um, <coughs> that uh, has not been picked up and it's only got like a couple hundred of views. So I'm not really sure uh, what the reasoning is behind that. I don't know if there's any conspiracy theories that I believe in. And honestly, I really don't care. I'm going to put out content, but um, we are starting to develop a very devoted uh, fan base to the show and to those people that are out there. I thank you and I appreciate you so much. Um, and we have to get the word out to everybody else. Uh, share this share this show with your family members, with your friends, uh, with your loved ones. Uh, like, uh, subscribe to the channel. Please subscribe to the channel if you haven't done so already. Um, comment down below. Get and see some of these discussions. I want to hear what you guys' thoughts are about this trial. I want to grow this channel, and I'm, more importantly, I want to grow this community. I've gotten to know quite a few of you so far, um, and just some of the questions that you've asked me that I've had the ability to answer. Some of you have contacted me through uh, DM uh, to ask me legal questions that I've had the ability to respond to. Um, some of you have just straight up asked me in the comments, <coughs> which I ap appreciate. Uh, to my one listener that I give a vertigo to when I'm rocking back and forth in my chair. I hope I did a very, I hope I did a better job for you today. I really try to consciously not do that because I really do. And you know what? Um, I do that when I'm in court as well. I'll be sitting there at council table and I'll be so bored and I'll be sitting there rocking back in my chair and I'm sure it gets on the nerves of opposing counsel, but it's a bad habit that I've had since I was a boy and um, I'll try to do better. And I do apologize about the vertigo thing. Sincerely, I truly do. Um, as far as uh, the podcast, this is the YouTube show, and I generally upload the audio from the YouTube show for the podcast, so you can listen to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, wherever it is that you listen. Um, we're, we're pretty much on all of the major platforms. 
Um, if you don't know where to find us, if you type the Tilted Lawyer into any search engine on your phone or otherwise, um, I'm sure you'll be directed to uh, your platform of choice. But at any rate, this show is growing. Um, our fan base is growing. Um, this family is growing. And I appreciate you guys to no end. Uh, for tonight, that's all I really have for you. Um, but we're going to be uh, with you again next week. And we may we may have some bonus episodes um, in the coming days. <coughs> They're not going to be uh, the hour 15 long videos that I normally put out. But I'll have some just if there's anything that comes out that needs to be discussed. I'm going to try to do that for you. I think we got the long form content down. I'm going to try to focus on doing some of these shorter videos that doesn't take um, as much time, um, as much as my schedule will allow. But at any rate, thank you so much for, for joining us. And um, I, I look forward to uh, hearing from you in the comments section and engaging with you guys as much as I can. Thank you all for listening to the entire podcast. We really do appreciate that. And as always, you can find us on YouTube on the Tilted Lawyer Podcast YouTube channel or on your podcast carrier of choice. If you feel we've presented anything of value, please leave a five-star rating, like, and subscribe. We always appreciate that kind of thing. And we do look forward to seeing you all again live every Thursday at 3 in the afternoon. We love you all. Take care.